What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Tessa Hadley read her story, After the Funeral, from the March 28, 2022 issue of the magazine. Hadley has published 11 books of fiction, including the story collection Bad Dreams and Other Stories, and the novel Free Love, which came out this year. She is a winner of the 2016 Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize. Now here's Tessa Hadley. After the Funeral After the funeral, the two little girls, aged nine and seven, accompanied their grief-stricken mother home. Naturally, they were also grief-stricken, but then again, they hadn't known their father very well and hadn't enormously liked him. He was an airline pilot and they preferred it when he was away working. Being alert little girls, they'd picked up intimations that he preferred it too. This was in the 1970s, when air travel was still considered glamorous. Philip Lyons had flown 747s across the Atlantic for BOAC until he died of a heart attack. Luckily, not while in the air, but on the ground, prosaically eating breakfast in a New York hotel room. The airline had flown him home free of charge. All the girls' concentration was on their mother, Marlene, who couldn't cope. Throughout the funeral service, she didn't even cry. She was numb, huddled in her black Persian lamb coat, petite and soft and pretty in dark glasses with muzzy licorice brown hair and red sugar date lipstick. Her daughters suspected that she had a very unclear idea of what was going on. It was January, and a patchy sprinkling of snow lay over the stone-cold ground and the graves in a bleak, impersonal cemetery in the Thames Valley. Marlene had apparently never been to a funeral before. The girls hadn't either, but they picked things up quickly. They had known from television, for instance, that their mother ought to wear dark glasses to the graveside, and they'd hunted for some in the chest of drawers in her bedroom, which was suddenly their terrain now, liberated from the possibility of their father's arriving home ever again. Lulu had bounced on the peach candlewick bedspread while Charlotte went through the drawers. During the various fascinating stages of the funeral, 
the girls were aware of their mother peering surreptitiously around, unable to break her old habit of expecting Philip to arrive, to get her out of this. Your father will be here soon, she used to warn them, vaguely and helplessly when they were running riots, screaming and hurtling round the bungalow in some game or other. The reception after the funeral was to be hosted by their grandmother, Philip's mother. Charlotte could read the desperate pleading in Marlene's eyes, fixed on her now, from behind the dark lenses. Oh no, I, I can't, Marlene said to her older daughter quickly, furtively. I can't see all those people. So Charlotte took charge, arranging things with the funeral director who was willing to give them a lift home in his hearse, and then breaking the news to Nana, who was affronted but couldn't be surprised by any new revelation of Marlene's inadequacy. Nana was a tall, straight-backed widow whose white hair was cut sensibly short. She collected old Delft and read all the new novels and taught piano, only not to Lulu, who had wriggled and slid down off the piano stool, wanting to press the pedals with her hands. Charlotte practised religiously, but wasn't musical, Nana said. Of course, Nana was grieving, too, for her youngest son. Her other sons were a doctor and a dentist, and although she used to talk deprecatingly about Philip's flying, as if it were something rash, like running away to join the circus or a pop group, the girls understood now that this meant he'd been her favourite. She'd lost her baby boy and was inconsolable like a tragic actress in a film. Charlotte and Lulu looked volumes at each other. At home, they fussed around Marlene, who submitted limply to their ministrations. They kissed her and took off admiringly piece by piece in reverse order all the items they'd dress her up in for the day's drama. Sunglasses, black chiffon headscarf, royal blue gloves because she didn't possess black, high-heeled black patent leather slingbacks. The beloved Persian lamb they returned tenderly to its clinging polythene. Then they sat her down on the sofa in front of the television and turned on children's hour. Lulu, pressing up against her, stroked her left hand with its wedding ring, which radiated now a new significance. Charlotte, feeling grown up, boiled the kettle and made tea in the pot for them all, stirring two teaspoons of sugar and a not extravagant dollop of whiskey into each mug, plus extra milk in Lulu's. She got out the biscuit barrel from where it was supposed to be hidden in a high cupboard by standing on a stool as usual. Marlene couldn't reach the high cupboard either without using the stool. They ate a lot of biscuits, and Charlotte made them toast under the grill with its real flames. Later, their Uncle Richard, the dentist, turned up to make sure they were all right, bringing leftover food that Nana had sent from the reception, sandwiches and coleslaw and Madeira cake, and also two servings of jelly with mandarin oranges set in it for the little girls. The sisters felt a hostility to this uncle that wasn't rational, but was based on their sessions in his terrible chair, so exquisitely equipped for torturing them. Now it was Richard's turn to be made uncomfortable. Clearly, he didn't know where to look in the face of his niece's and his sister-in-law's predicament, and what he assumed were the excesses of their emotion. His brother's death was an embarrassment, brash and scene-stealing, he thought, like everything Philip had ever done. Not only that, 
but the black cocktail dress Marlene was wearing, it was the only black thing she had, was very low cut. For the duration of the funeral, the girls had made sure she kept her cardigan buttoned over it. Richard was rather like Philip in appearance, tall and burly and sandy. As soon as Marlene saw him, she lunged into his arms, breaking into hysterical weeping. Uneasily, he extricated himself. Now, come on, Marlene, you have to buck up, you know. But I've lost everything, she said, sobbing. Well, not everything. You've got your girls. You have to be brave for them. I can't be brave without Philip. I can't be. You have to look to the future. I don't want the future. I want Philip back. I should have thrown myself into his grave today. I wish I was dead too. Impressed, the sisters exchanged glances and Richard saw it. Isn't it time these girls were in bed, he said severely. Then Lulu too burst loudly into tears, hiding her face against her mother's half-bare breasts, arms squeezed round Marlene's small waist so that she couldn't unfasten them. Richard was out of his depth. Only Charlotte could calm them all down. When he'd gone, she looked in the Radio Times and found that at 9.25 on BBC One there was an episode of one of their favourites, A Man Called Ironside. They watched it while eating ham sandwiches and crisps, snuggled together, as always for the telly, under a wool blanket on the sofa. Charlotte only just remembered not to exclaim, Isn't this cosy? Marlene used to put the blanket back in the spare room whenever their father was due home, but now there was no one ever again to prevent them enjoying themselves. By the time Ironside was over, Marlene was fast asleep. Exhausted by sorrow, snoring lightly with her mouth open and her eyebrows plucked to a thin line, raised quizzically. The girls crept into the kitchen. Lulu stood on tiptoe to see over the top of the kitchen counter, surveying what their uncle had brought them from the party. Nana sent us jelly, Charlotte said, in her special best glass dishes for a treat. Lulu was small like her mother and her wide face was as pink and creamy as an angel's in a painting, dark eyes set far apart under thick lashes, the mass of her dark brown corkscrew curls shivering with impatient energy. She took one of the jelly dishes carefully in her two hands, lifted it up over her head and, before Charlotte had time to grasp what she intended, let it fall deliberately onto the tiled floor where it smashed in a satisfactory splat of red jelly and orange segments. Shards of glass went skidding over the floor and under the cupboards. They heard their mother stirring in the sitting room but knew she hadn't woken because she would have called out to them. After a moment's frozen outrage, Charlotte stepped over the mess to smack her sister hard across the face. Charlotte was tall for her age and very thin with her pale hair cut short like a boy's. Her grey eyes were huge and their heavy lids dropping over her expression like shutters conveyed her burden of responsibility. As Lulu prepared to break out in wailing, Charlotte shook her urgently by the shoulders. We have to clean this up, she said. We'll tell them it was an accident. They're bound to forgive us today of all days. But we can't ever be naughty again now that Daddy's dead. Lulu protested indignantly. Why not? Because then Nana will adopt us and we'll have to live with her. 
This was a sobering prospect, even for Lulu. Once the excitement of the funeral was over, the girls took in the solemnity of their loss. It was shocking, for instance, when Uncle Richard's wife, Hilary, came round with their other Aunt Deirdre to deal with Philip's clothes. They were sorting out what his brothers could use and what had to go to the Salvation Army. This felt like a violation to Marlene and she couldn't watch, only sat seeping tears in the living room, unable to shake off a dread that Philip would hold her accountable. He'd never been able to stand his brother's wives and hated anyone poking around in his wardrobe. There was something unseemly, even gloating, in how Hilary and Deirdre were holding up his suits now for judgment, sniffing the armpits of his shirts and even the crotch of his trousers. After a while, the aunts forgot to use their subdued voices, and Marlene and the girls overheard Deirdre saying suggestively, "'Well, at least he wasn't alone when he died.' That was the first they'd heard of it. Mother and daughters looked wide-eyed at one another, but didn't dare ask. Even though their father had so often been absent, the idea of him had given the girls' daily life its particular flavour, they realised now, and they paid anxious tribute to him in retrospect. He may not have wanted them under his feet all the time when he was home, but sometimes he'd tickled them and thrown them in the air, and also he'd brought them costume dolls for their collection from all over the world. Some of their treats, supper in front of the TV, jumping from the kitchen roof onto a mattress they'd dragged outside, eating condensed milk from the tin, seemed less pleasurable now that they didn't fear his disapproval. They were haunted, too, by the scene of his death, which they had to imagine because the details were kept from them like something hidden behind a curtain in a horror film. At least he wasn't alone. Whatever beast had felled their father, so fearless and bursting with life, must have been potent in ways that were also shaming and disgusting. For a while, Lulu had to sleep in Charlotte's bed at night because she could see Daddy's picture when she closed her eyes. Don't be silly, Charlotte said firmly, although she rolled over toward the wall resignedly and punched out the pillow that had been scrunched under her head so that there was room on it for both of them. He no longer exists. He exists inside my eyes. By the time she awoke the next morning, Charlotte would be pressed, she knew, into the narrow margin of her own bed while Lulu luxuriated unconsciously in possession of the rest of it, sprawled on her back with her pyjama top twisted under her armpits and her dark curls sweaty, breathing noisily, the fine red V of her lip drawn up, showing the little baby teeth like seed pearls. Once it became clear that Marlene had no idea about money, Philip's brothers carried off from his desk all the papers that Marlene superstitiously wouldn't even touch in case she messed something up. It turned out that Philip hadn't had much idea about money either. The Lyonses convened a family conference. There was grim satisfaction in how Nana broke the news to them. Philip hadn't taken out any life insurance and there was very little pension. They would have to move out of the bungalow, which was the only home the girls could remember, because the rent was too expensive. Philip's brothers would club together to keep the girls at their fee-paying school, 
but to cover the rest of their costs, Marlene would need to go out to work. Deirdre had heard of a job that might suit her as a receptionist for a doctor who'd gone to medical school with Dennis. Marlene protested to her daughters afterward in an uncharacteristic gush of resentment against their grandmother. For the most part, she submitted meekly to her authority. I used to have it over her because she was a widow and I had a husband living. Now she thinks she knows everything. The girls consoled her. Nana wasn't half so pretty or nice as she was. They were all three looking with different eyes already at the bungalow that had been the shape of their family life so far and seemed shabbier and sadder on the eve of parting. Another revelation at about this time, which Nana certainly didn't know about, was the appearance on the scene, at least briefly, of Marlene's own relatives. Or two of them, anyway, a woman and a man purporting to be her sister and her cousin, although the girls weren't convinced, and as they never appeared or were mentioned again, a doubt persisted. Charlotte and Lulu hadn't wondered much about the absence of family on their mother's side. She had seemed a one-off, sui generis. Now that gap was filled with a vengeance by this improbable pair, who had driven down from Great Yarmouth, apparently squeezed into a bubble car, they must have hoped when Marlene contacted them out of the blue, self-important with her loss a few weeks after the funeral, that there was an inheritance involved. Stuck-up cow, Charlotte overheard the sister say as they departed. Marlene had poured tea in the best beige and pea-green china, shaking with the effort of lifting the pot two-handed. We knew you had to get married, the sister had said to her. She was a poisonous puffball in a mushroom-coloured trouser suit. The cousin was wispy with dyed yellow hair and an earring and sky-blue nylon flares. It wasn't easy to believe in their connection to Marlene, who cared about appearances and wanted everything to be lovely, was so proud of the way she dressed her girls. They had looked rather like orphans even before their father died because she went in for Victorian style, as she called it. Smocked plaid viella dresses, velvet ribbon hairbands, black ribbed tights which shrank in the wash and dragged down on their legs so the girls were always having to tug them up. Marlene's employment worked out well. Dr Cherry was much nicer than Uncle Dennis. He was tall and jovial and stooped like an awkward boy with black-rimmed glasses and shirt collars greasy from his hair. Marlene thought that his wife didn't look after his shirts properly. Because he was so educated and passionate about medicine, he sometimes offended his patients, particularly the old ladies, by dismissing their illnesses too cheerfully. It was Marlene's role to soothe and charm them, and she was a great success at it. She carried over her reassuring manner from when she'd been an air hostess before she married. Her daughters, when they were little, had loved playing airplanes with her, getting her to put on the syrupy, posh air hostess voice that was a part of her mystique for them, setting out the chairs in rows in the bungalow's dining room, taking turns to bring round beakers of squash with ice cubes, fastening imaginary seatbelts for takeoff. Ladies and gentlemen, we're now flying at 30,000 feet. But the girls had grown too old for those games. Now they came to the surgery every afternoon after school, a picture in their matching maroon uniforms, 
blazers in the summer, gabardine max in the winter, felt hats secured under the chin with elastic. Charlotte, with her disenchanted, cool look, was disconcerting, her grey eyes the colour of rain or marsh water, her skinny long arms and legs. She would set to work right away, sorting out the chaos of filing that had built up by this time out of sight behind the reception hatch where her mother presided with such aplomb. Lulu, meanwhile, lay on her stomach on the carpet in the waiting room, absorbedly filling in the outlines in her colouring book and returning each crayon when she'd finished with it to its place in the spectrum in the plastic wallet. She got up occasionally to sharpen one into the waste paper bin. It was peaceful at the surgery, among the waiting patients on winter evenings with the gas fire hissing, Lulu's crayon murmuring steadily on the paper, every so often Marlene calling out a patient's name from her list. Of course, the girls were always catching some bug or other. Their mother protested that Lulu did it on purpose so that she could stay home from school. Charlotte liked school, or at least liked coming top in her lessons. Lulu hated it. She was bored to death, neither clever nor good at games. And yet she was popular with the other girls. They liked to hold her hands and touch her hair as if she were their pet. She played French skipping with them in the rose garden beside main house, rubber bands knotted into long ropes around their ankles. Or she folded fortune tellers for them out of paper. True love, or better luck next time, or not lightly... Dr Cherry's Bempstead Heath surgery was miles from their new flat above a solicitor's office in Purley, and they had to take two buses to get home. Often the doctor gave them a lift driving out of his way, and he came in for a drink sometimes on sleety dark evenings when they all three coaxed him, Lulu laying her cheek against his tweedy rough sleeve, clinging to his shoulder and refusing to let go. Charlotte hurrying upstairs ahead of the others to turn on the lamps of the three-bar fire and draw the curtains across the windows of their front room which looked onto the high street. Fortunately, this was rowdy only at weekends. All the heavy old furniture from the bungalow had been squeezed somehow into this cramped little flat, even the piano. Their grandfather, Nana's husband, travelling long ago in the Far East, had brought back a sideboard and two huge chairs like thrones carved in black wood which dominated the insignificant space. Charlotte fetched down cut glass tumblers from the drinks cabinet and a bottle of ginger ale to mix with the grown-up's whisky. She and Lulu drank Cokes, which might have a dot of whisky in them too. She put out stuffed olives and salted nuts in little lacquered dishes. Even after a long day at work, Marlene was in her element at these intimate soirees, as she called them. She couldn't really speak French, but she'd picked up the accent when she was flying and was a good mimic. Quick as a little monkey, Dr Cherry teased her, intrigued and sceptical, sunk rather deep in the low sofa as if he were keeping out of sight for some reason, although no one could possibly have seen through those thick curtains. He nursed his drink to his chest with his knees jackknifed, his eager boy's limbs overlong in that space so crowded with furniture, his face alight with reason and cleverness. Perched on the edge of the sofa beside him, legs elegantly crossed in her sheer nylons, Marlene would smoke Sobrani cocktail cigarettes and interrogate him earnestly about health issues and slimming diets, 
or reminisce about trips she'd made before she was married to Paris or Venice, singing snatches of song, waving her cigarette in the air for emphasis. The girls knew all these songs. They joined in too. Their mother would loosen the doctor's tie and ease the shoes off his feet, declare that he was working too hard. I wish you'd let me have a go at those shirts. The doctor... Resigned and expansive, relaxing into the heat of the electric fire, said he thought they were crazy, the whole family. He didn't know what he was doing here in their crazy world, he added complacently, slurring just slightly, as much from fatigue as from the drink, when he ought to be behaving himself at home. At a sign from their mother, Charlotte and Lulu went down to the high street with a pound note, getting fish and chips all round. Later... Seeing the doctor glance pointedly at his watch, Charlotte would announce that it was bedtime and march Lulu off into the bathroom to do her wee-wee and clean her teeth. If she didn't watch out, Lulu might scamper back into the front room, showing off in her pink baby doll pyjamas, bashing out a snatch of chopsticks on the out-of-tune piano, screwing up her face comically at the ceiling, waggling her curls and her bottom, making the doctor laugh until Charlotte dragged her away again. The girls slept in bunks. Lulu would push up hard with her feet on the underside of Charlotte's mattress until Charlotte peered down crossly over the guardrail, telling her off. On nights when Dr Cherry was there, they left the bedroom door ajar, not wanting to be cut off entirely from whatever fun was unfolding in the front room. Sometimes the doctor helped Marlene make coffee. Sometimes they watched telly or... Marlene put a record on and tried to persuade him to dance. Sometimes the girls woke up to overhear snatches of talk that was not like conversation at all, but warm and sweet and very low, like something bubbling or fermenting, an urging male voice rumbling alongside their mother's fluting, charming, parrying one. The two wrapped around each other fluently, and they knew when the doctor left, because the closing of the front door at the bottom of the staircase, beside the entrance to the solicitors, gave out a certain twanging sound, subdued but resonant, which reached the girls like a signal, resolving something, even in the deep chambers of their dreams. When Charlotte was in the fourth year, beginning to study for her O-levels, Marlene took driving lessons. To everyone's surprise, she was a natural and passed her test the first time, then adored the little red Honda Civic that Uncle Richard chose and helped her pay for. She amazed her daughters, bombing along a clear stretch of road on the way home from Bemstead Heath, checking proficiently in the rearview mirror or backing with deft movements into a snugly fitting parking space, swivelling in her seat to look over her shoulder. Hilary and Deirdre could both drive, but Nana had never learned, and Uncle Richard told it as a great joke that Hilary was terrified behind the wheel, went for miles out of her way to avoid turning right against the traffic. Now Marlene and her girls could go on their own holidays, instead of depending on Richard to drive them to his cottage in North Wales where there was no phone or television, usually it rained, and they spent the week playing Cluedo and Monopoly until he came to fetch them home again. Hilary had encouraged them heartily. So good to get away from it all. Yet 
Even after Marlene passed her test, the girl still heard a male voice in the flat sometimes rumbling in the night. How could it be Dr Cherry when Marlene had driven home from the surgery by herself? Yet it sounded like Dr Cherry. On occasion, it sounded like Uncle Richard. It's funny that they still come, Lulu said, now that she can drive. Charlotte instructed her sternly. Don't you know what they come for? Lulu stared into her sister's face, drawing down insight from it, taking Charlotte's knowledge inside herself and connecting it to a diagram of a drooping plant that a lady doctor had sketched on the blackboard in a special class they were given once a year at school, excused for the afternoon from ordinary lessons. Love is the root, this lady had explained, labelling the diagram in her neat handwriting. Friendship is the stem and leaves, and physical passion is the flower and comes last. Lulu had heard all about sex in the gossip that went around at school, but she hadn't until this moment connected it with the flower of physical passion, let alone with her own mother. Then, when Charlotte was in the sixth form, there was a kerfuffle at the surgery and Marlene lost her job. Ostensibly, this was because Dr Cherry's surgery was amalgamating with two others to form a brand-new Bempstead Heath Health Centre which would not need so many receptionists. But it was obvious, even to the girls, that there was more to it. Their grandmother paid them a visit to remonstrate with Marlene and accuse her of going off the rails. Didn't her dead husband's family mean anything to her? Didn't she owe something to Deirdre and Hilary for finding her that job? I can find a job perfectly well myself, thank you, Marlene said stiffly, not without dignity. We'll see about that. Then it emerged that Marlene had found something already, beginning the following week at the checkout in a little supermarket along the high street. This seemed only to antagonise their grandmother further. It was the first time she'd visited them in the flat. They were invited to her house once a month for Sunday lunch, and Charlotte still went for piano lessons in a spirit of dutiful compliance, although there wasn't much point, Nana had said. Now the old lady stared around as if she were taking an inventory of all the furniture that rightfully belonged to her. She held herself very upright in one of her dead husband's carved thrones, with her coat still on and her handbag on her lap. She had refused tea and sherry. Charlotte had made tea nonetheless in the beige and green pot, which looked old-fashioned now, and poured it for the three of them and passed around biscuits. Probably the biscuit plates were Nana's too. I'm afraid for my grandchildren, Nana said, when I see the way you live. There's nothing wrong with having a bit of fun, Marlene said stubbornly. Nana was frozen, offended to the soul. Is that what you call it? Fun? Y you don't need to worry about us, Charlotte reassured her. Lulu had just learned to do French knitting. Sitting beside her mother on the sofa, she wasn't taking much notice of the conversation, engrossed in weaving her wool with a fine crochet hook around the four nails knocked into a cotton reel. It was a craze at school. From time to time she stopped to peer with one eye, shutting the other one tightly, down the hole in the reel and into the interior of the long snake of striped knitting emerging from its far end. 
And it's high time you talked to a professional about that one, Nana burst out at the limit of her patience. It's clear there's something missing. She needs help. Marlene contemplated Lulu in surprise. There's nothing wrong with her. I knew as soon as I met you that you were trouble, bringing bad blood into the family. I'm only glad that poor Philip isn't here to know what's going on. If Daddy were here, Charlotte remonstrated reasonably, then Mummy wouldn't have needed a job in the first place. She had remembered guiltily, however, when she heard bad blood, the puffball sister in her mushroom suit and the yellow-haired cousin with his earring. Nana shifted her scrutiny from Lulu to her older sister perched sideways on the piano stool. Charlotte looked nothing like her mother, but wasn't wholesome and substantial like Philip either. She was angular, with apologetic small breasts prodding her polo shirt, lavender-coloured flares sagging on jutting hip bones, colourless limp hair, a rash blooming on her jaw. No wonder she doesn't have boyfriends, thought Nana, whose other granddaughters, Charlotte and Lulu's cousins, were talented and popular. Charlotte's air of martyrdom was unappealing, and that bustling, precocious way she had of putting herself forward. In fact, her tragic, heavy-lidded eyes were like Nana's own. Hilary and Deirdre had remarked upon this. Yet she experienced her grandmother's gaze, which was the same milky blue as her dove pottery, as a sensation of cold, as impersonal when it passed over her as a lighthouse beam. And as for you, Charlotte... But Charlotte couldn't bear to hear sentence pronounced. Swivelling abruptly on the piano stool, she turned her back to the room and launched into playing fur elise very badly and loudly, pumping on the sustain pedal like a bellows. She could picture perfectly from her piano lessons her grandmother's expression of long suffering. Marlene was happy working in that supermarket, which smelled of onions and stale water leaked from the frozen food cabinet. The fluorescent lights flickered sometimes and gave her a headache, but the pay was just as good as at the surgery, and she liked the camaraderie with the other women. She'd known right away not to put on her air hostess voice. There was more excitement in the shop than at the doctor's. Shouting in the aisles, sudden illnesses and shoplifting, even one or two local drug addicts. And once an actual armed robbery, although only a small one, when a panicked, shrimpy-looking man threatened them with a bread knife and took 40 packs of Benson and Hedges. Charlotte ought to go to university, all her teachers said. She got as far as filling in her ucker form and going for interviews at York and Durham and Warwick. It was the first time she'd ever travelled on a train by herself. She was offered places at York and Warwick to do sociology and psychology, but decided to look for a job at home instead. Uncle Richard came round to the flat especially to reason with her and reported back to Hilary that his niece was a funny sort of girl, a bit of a cold fish, very set on her own ideas. And you've always taken such an interest in their education, Hilary said, brushing out her greying hair at the dressing table, meeting her husband's look neutrally in the mirror, stranding him yet again in tormented speculation. Did Hilary know about his fling with Marlene, or didn't she? How could I go, Charlotte said to Lulu. What do you suppose would happen if I weren't here to keep an eye on everything? 
I don't know, Lulu said unhappily. What would happen? She can't take care of herself, you know. Like at the surgery when she never could grasp the system for the filing. She couldn't have kept that job for as long as she did if I hadn't helped her. But she manages at the shop OK, Lulu said, working the till, stock-taking. Well, goodness me, Charlotte said contemptuously. Couldn't anyone? And Charlotte found a post herself soon afterward, in resource planning with the West Surrey Water Board. Meanwhile, one of the Saturday boys at the shop had fallen in love with Lulu, and Charlotte disapproved of him. Damien was nice-looking, with wiry dark hair and wide-apart brown eyes flecked with gold, but characterless to the point of oddity. Visiting them in the flat, he sat, leaning forward, hands clasped, staring down at his polished black platform shoes with intensity. It was a struggle to keep conversation flowing around the blockage of his silence. His wordlessness, however, didn't mean he couldn't express his passion in other ways. When Lulu took him into the bedroom to listen to Culture Club on the girls' dance set record player, Marlene insisted they leave the door open. But she needn't have worried. Lulu was vigilant on her own behalf and had taken in with a fervour that was almost mystical how the permitted and forbidden areas were marked out on her compact, neat little body. In puberty, she'd shed some of the wildness of her childhood, like a domesticated animal losing its high sheen and nervous quiver. They hadn't seen Dr Cherry for long months. And then, one evening, when the memory of a macaroni cheese supper still hung thickly about the flat and they were watching the latest episode of Nicholas Nickleby, he erupted once again into their lives. Charlotte went down to open the door when the bell rang. Agitated and proud, she presented him in the sitting room where the others were still cuddled under the telly blanket. Look who's here! The doctor appeared dishevelled and emotional, slightly unhinged, his glasses steaming up from the cold night outside. With just the faintest shade of reluctance, she was so involved in the story, Marlene turned off the telly. Graham Cherry, apparently, was leaving his wife and three children. He was staying in a bed and breakfast in Purley around the corner from their flat. It occurred to Charlotte immediately that he was the solution to all their problems. Already she was imagining him married to Marlene and putting his foot down in relation to Damien. Vaguely, in the background to this happy picture, she herself might at last be away at university doing wonderfully in all her exams. They warmed up some leftover macaroni cheese for the doctor and poured him a stiff whisky. Marlene rinsed his shirt and socks in the bathroom sink, hanging them over the bath to dry. He sat ensconced among the sofa cushions in her flowered dressing gown, how I've missed you all, he said with a tremor in his voice. It's been awful at home. If you knew how often I've thought about this cosy little place. We've missed you too, Charlotte said tenderly. We missed our conversations. She had a qualm, lest, with her away at university, the doctor might be starved of rational companionship left with only her mother and her sister to talk to. It would be worth any sacrifice, she thought, to keep him sweet. But for the moment, that difficulty still lay in an unknown future. The succeeding weeks were feverish with planning and possibility. 
On one joyous occasion, the doctor took them all into London to see a show. They went for a hamburger afterward and then walked in the crowds along the south bank past the illuminated GLC building, whose reflection glittered in the black river water where the dark forms of boats came and went mysteriously. Marlene was lovely that evening. After a few brandy and baby shams in her pearl earrings and the precious Persian lamb. She was hanging on one of the doctor's arms, Charlotte on the other, Lulu dawdling alongside them, drinking everything in. They were like a real family, Charlotte thought. When they got back to the flat in Purley eventually and the girls had retired to bed, surely they couldn't stay too much longer in these awful bunks, absurd at their age. The doctor really did broach the idea of marriage. Yet, unaccountably, on the brink of the future, Marlene hesitated. Oh, dear, I don't know, she said, sighing the following evening, when the doctor was absent, partly sulking because Marlene hadn't leaped at her chance, partly cheering on his daughter in a swimming gala. He says he'd want me to give up my work. He's a doctor, Mummy, Charlotte exclaimed, incredulous. A doctor's wife can't work in a supermarket. But I don't mind it. I like to pay my own way. You wouldn't need to pay your own anything once you were married to him. The doctor was wounded by Marlene's doubt, withdrew his warmth and stopped coming to see them. Charlotte began going out in the evenings with an anxious, important face to visit his lonely bedsit and negotiate the next step with him. They were like co-conspirators. Sometimes she didn't come home until past midnight. One grey Sunday morning in February, the doctor and Marlene agreed to a family walk in the recreation ground. This felt more like a truce than like an end to the war. I am thinking about it, I promise, Marlene had said to Charlotte. What's the hurry? I don't want to rush into anything I'll regret later. They were all subdued and chastened in a bitter wind, under a white sky spitting rain, swathed in scarves, pushing gloved hands deep in their pockets. Damien and Lulu hung behind, bubbling with amorousness, shoving at each other's muffled shape. Damien whispered into Lulu's ear, probing past her woolly hat and springy curls with his long, fine fingers. Marlene did her best to keep up a flow of inconsequential chatter about her friends who worked at the shop. One had a funny digestion, another had sciatica. She wondered if the doctor had any advice for them. He said, not really, they should go to their own doctor, exuding an air of quiet desperation. The path ran alongside a row of municipal pines, astringently resinous, whose red bark hung down in strings. Lolly sticks and sweet papers and caches of dog dirt with smeared tissue paper were tucked in among the tree roots. The light was thwarted and desolate. The doctor stopped suddenly. Oh God, this is bloody, he said, not looking at anyone. Then he swerved on his heel and strode off without a word more, back in the direction of the car park, stooping with his head bent into the wind, his long legs working like scissors. Luckily, they'd come in two cars. Well, that was uncalled for, Marlene said, staring after him. 
If there's one thing I can't condone, it's rude behaviour. Wasn't he supposed to be having dinner with us? Lulu wondered. Charlotte stood staring at nothing on the ground, heavy lids sealing off her usual vigilance. Beside the path was a steep bank overgrown with tall grass, bleached and stained and flattened by the rain and wind. She struck off suddenly, descending the bank at an angle, up to her knees in grass, stumbling and nearly losing her footing as if she were wading through water. At the bottom of the bank, she stopped with her back to them. Whatever's got into her? Lulu asked in astonishment. It was as if some gauzy and confusing veil had been pulled away from Marlene's eyes and she saw her older daughter clearly for the first time. Everyone had always worried about Lulu, but Lulu was fine. It wasn't Lulu standing there looking so solitary and thin and dejected, bedraggled like a migrating bird blown off its course. You go on back, she said, handing the car keys to Lulu. Wait for us in the car, I'll talk to her. Really? What's wrong with everybody? Just leave me alone, Charlotte said loudly without turning around. Go away and leave me here. I want to die. Lulu and Damien exchanged quick glances of comical surprise, but set off obediently walking back in the direction they'd come, huddled together and faintly huffy, they hadn't wanted to come out for a walk in the first place. Marlene picked her way down the bank toward her daughter and put her arms around Charlotte, frozen and resisting from behind. She could smell the anais anais that Charlotte had sprayed on her neck. You know, if you'd got into trouble, Char, she said hesitantly and quietly, just for the two of them to hear, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't care what people thought. We'd love having a baby in that flat. I still got your old curry cot put away somewhere. In a scornful voice, flat with despair, Charlotte told her not to be ridiculous. She wasn't pregnant. She wasn't quite that much of an idiot. But she allowed her mother all the same to stroke her hunched shoulders through the thick winter coat. Don't worry, darling, Marlene said, making little soothing noises. You will get over it, I promise, whatever it is. You're young. You've got your whole life ahead of you. But I don't want my life. I hate my life. Marlene was remembering those evenings when Charlotte had gone round to conspire with the doctor in his bedsit, then come home and let herself into the flat so late, with such a guilty, heated, angry, happy face. She had been waiting up for her daughter each time in her dressing gown and slippers in front of the electric fire, dozing over the local paper. Well, what did he say? And Charlotte had snapped at her crossly, frowning, unwinding her long scarf from around her neck. Marlene could smell the cold night air that she brought in with her. I can't tell you all about it now. It's too late. I'll tell you in the morning. The doctor, meanwhile, as mother and daughter stood facing certain realities in the park, was on the road for home, his rightful home, with his wife and children. Hardly caring what reception awaited him there, he felt strong enough for anything. 
he'd awoken out of a fever dream, as if all the years of his education and his hard graft in medical school could have been meant to end in that ghastly bedsit or in a stuffy flat in Purley. Batting aside a bothersome slideshow of images, Charlotte's goose-fleshed, greenish-white limbs, abandoned like something drowned against pink nylon sheets that had crackled with static, he shifted in his seat and glanced uneasily in the rearview mirror. There had been an excruciating scene with his landlady who complained about night visitors. Dr Cherry had made a few wrong diagnoses in his career, missing the spinal tumour, for example, that had caused one patient's back pain, and he'd sent away with reassurances a child who'd turned out to have meningitis. That child hadn't died, but hadn't made a complete recovery either. Everybody makes mistakes, the doctor consoled himself, turning on the windscreen wipers. You just have to be strong enough to learn to live with them. The rain was really lashing now. It was coming down in torrents. That was Tessa Hadley reading her story after the funeral. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2002. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Gish Jen reads Friends by Grace Paley. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.